This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk From October to Brest-Litovsk by Leon Trotsky Chapter 12 Withdrawing from the Pre-Parliament The Voice of the Front Before withdrawing from the membership of the pre-parliament where, according to Kerensky's and Seratelli's political statistics, we were entitled to some half a hundred seats, we arranged a conference with the left SR group. They refused to follow us, claiming that they still had to demonstrate practically before the peasantry the insolvency of the pre-parliament. Said one of the leaders of the left SRs, we deem it necessary to warn you that if you want to withdraw from the pre-parliament in order forthwith to go into the streets for an open fight, we shall not follow you. The bourgeois fusionist press accused us of striving to kill prematurely the pre-parliament for the very purpose of creating a revolutionary situation. At our faction meeting in the pre-parliament, it was decided to act independently and not wait for the left SRs. Our party's declaration, proclaimed from the pre-parliament rostrum and explaining why we were breaking from this institution, was greeted with a howl of hatred and impotence on the part of the majority groups. In the Petrograd Soviet of Deputies, where our withdrawal from the pre-parliament was approved by an overwhelming majority, the leader of the tiny internationalist Menshevik group, Martov, explained to us that the withdrawal from the temporary Soviet of the Republic, such was the official appellation of this little respected institution, would be sensible only in case we proposed immediately to assume an open offensive. But the point is that this is just what we intended. The prosecutors for the liberal bourgeoisie were right when accusing us of striving to create a revolutionary situation. In open insurrection and direct seizure of power, we beheld the only way out of the situation. Again, as in the July days, the press and all the other organs of so-called public opinion were mobilized against us. From the July arsenals were dragged forth the most envenomed weapons which had been temporarily stored away there after the Kornilov days. Vain efforts. The mass was irresistibly moving towards us, and its spirit was rising hour by hour. From the trenches, delegates kept arriving. How long, said they at the Petrograd Soviet meetings, will this impossible situation last? The soldiers have told us to declare to you, if no decisive steps for peace are made by November the 1st, the trenches will be deserted. The entire army will rush to the rear. This determination was really spreading at the front. There the soldiers were passing on, from one unit to another, homemade proclamations, summoning them not to remain in the trenches later than the first snowfall. You have forgotten about us, the delegates on foot from the trenches exclaimed at the Soviet meetings. If you find no way out of the situation, we shall come here ourselves, and with our bayonets we shall disperse our enemies, including you. In the course of a few weeks, the Petrograd Council had become the center of attraction for the whole army. 
After its leading tendency had been changed and new presiding officers elected, its resolutions inspired the exhausted and despondent troops at the front with the hope that the way out of the situation could be practically found in the manner proposed by the Bolsheviks, by publishing the secret treaties and proposing an immediate truce on all fronts. You say that power must pass into the hands of the Soviets. Grasp it, then. Yon fear that the front will not support you. Cast all misgivings aside. The soldier masses are with you in overwhelming majority. Meanwhile, the conflict regarding the transfer of the garrison kept on developing. Almost daily, a garrison conference met, consisting of committees from the companies, regiments and commands. The influence of our party in the garrison was established definitely and indestructibly. The Petrograd district staff was in a state of extreme perplexity. Now it would attempt to enter into regular relations with us. Then again, egged on by the leaders of the Central Executive Committee, it would threaten us with repressive measures. Above, mention has already been made of organizing, at the Petrograd Soviet, a military revolutionary committee, which was intended to be, in fact, the Soviet staff of the Petrograd garrison in opposition to Kerensky's staff. But the existence of two staffs is inadmissible, the representatives of the fusionist parties dogmatically admonished us. But is a situation admissible wherein the garrison mistrusts the official staff and fears that the transfer of soldiers from Petrograd has been dictated by a new counter-revolutionary machination? We retorted. The creation of a second staff means insurrection, came the reply from the right. Your military revolutionary committee's task will not be so much to verify the operative projects and orders the military authorities as the preparation and execution of an insurrection against the present government. This objection was just, but for that very reason it did not frighten anybody. An overwhelming majority of the Soviet were aware of the necessity of overthrowing the coalition power. The more circumstantially the Mensheviks and SRs demonstrated that the Military Revolutionary Committee would inevitably turn into an organ of insurrection, the greater the eagerness with which the Petrograd Soviet supported the new fighting organization. The Military Revolutionary Committee's first act was to appoint commissioners to all parts of the Petrograd garrison and all the most important institutions of the capital and environs. From various quarters we were receiving communications that the government, or more correctly, the government parties, were actively organizing and arming their forces. From various arms depots, governmental and private rifles, revolvers, machine guns and cartridges were being brought forth for arming cadets, students and bourgeois youths in general. It was necessary to take immediate preventative measures. Commissioners were appointed to all arms depots and stores. Almost without opposition, they become masters of the situation. To be sure, the commandants and proprietors of the depots tried not to recognize them, but a mere application to the soldiers' committee or the employee of each institution sufficed to cause the immediate breakdown of the opposition. After that, arms were issued only on order of our commissioners. Even prior to that, regiments of the Petrograd garrison had their commissioners, but these had been appointed by the Central Executive Committee. Above, we said, that after the June Congress of Soviets, and particularly after June the 18th demonstration which revealed the ever-growing power of the Bolsheviks, 
the fusionist parties had almost entirely deprived the Petrograd Soviet of any practical influence on the course of events in the revolutionary capital. The leadership of the Petrograd garrison was concentrated in the hands of the Central Executive Committee. Now the task everywhere was to put in the Petrograd Soviet commissioners. This was achieved with the most energetic cooperation of the soldier masses. Meetings addressed by speakers of various parties had the result invariably that regiment after regiment declared it would recognize only the Petrograd Soviet's commissioners and would not budge a step without its decision. An important role in appointing these commissioners was played by the Bolsheviks' military organization. Before the July days, it had developed a widespread agitational activity. On July the 5th, a battalion of cyclists brought by Kerensky to Petrograd battered down the isolated Kashinsky mansion where our party's military organization was quartered. The majority of leaders and many privates among the members were arrested. The publications were stopped. The printing shop was wrecked. Only by degrees did the organization begin to repair its machinery afresh, conspiratively this time. Numerically, it comprised in its ranks but a very insignificant part of the Petrograd garrison, a few hundred men all told. But there were among them many soldiers and young officers, chiefly ensigns, resolute and with heart and soul devoted to the resolution, who had passed through Kerensky's prisons in July and August. All of them placed themselves at the Military Revolutionary Committee's disposal and were being assigned to the most responsible fighting posts. However, it would not be superfluous to remark that precisely the members of our party's military organization assumed in October an attitude of an extraordinary caution and even some skepticism towards the idea of an immediate insurrection. The closed character of the organization and its officially military character involuntarily inclined its leaders to underestimate the purely technical and organizational resources of the uprising, and from this point we were undoubtedly weak. Our strength lay in the revolutionary enthusiasm of the masses and their readiness to fight under our banner. Parallel with the organizing activity, a stormy agitation was being carried on. This was the period of incessant meetings at works, in the modern and Chinizelli circuses at clubs in barracks. The atmosphere at all the meetings was charged with electricity. Each mention of the insurrection was greeted with a storm of plaudits and shouts of delight. The bourgeois press merely increased the state of universal panic. An order issued over my signature to the Sestroyesk munitions factory to issue 5,000 rifles to the Red Guard evoked an indescribable panic in bourgeois circles. The general massacre in course of preparation was talked and written about everywhere. Of course, this did not in the least prevent the working men of the Sestroyesk munitions factory from handing the arms over to the Red Guards. The more frantically the bourgeois press slandered and baited us, the more ardently the masses responded to our call. It was growing clearer and clearer for both sides that the crisis must break within the next few days. The press of the SRs and Mensheviks was sounding an alarm. The revolution is in the greatest danger. A repetition of the July days is being prepared, but on a much wider basis and therefore still more destructive in its consequences. In his Novaya Zin, Gorky daily prophesied the approaching wreck of all civilization. 
In general, the socialistic veneer of the bourgeois intellectuals was wearing off at the approach of the stern domination of the workers' dictatorship. But on the other hand, the soldiers of even the most backward regiments hailed with delight the Military Revolutionary Committee's commissioners. Delegates came to us from Cossack units and from the socialist minority of military cadets. They promised at least to assure the neutrality of their units in case of an open conflict. Manifestly, Kerensky's government was losing its foundation. The district staff began negotiations with us and proposed a compromise. In order to size up the enemy's full resistance, we entered into Pourparlers. But the staff was nervous. Now they exhorted, then threatened us. They even declared our commissioners to be without power, which, however, did not in the least affect their work. In accord with the staff, the Central Executive Committee appointed Captain of Staff Malevsky to be Chief Commissioner for the Petrograd Military District and magnanimously consented to recognize our commissioners on condition of their being subordinate to this Chief Commissioner. The proposal was rejected and the negotiations broken off. Prominent Mensheviks and SRs came to us as intermediaries, exhorted, threatened and foretold our doom and the doom of the revolution. End of chapter 12